This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. And Father, as we turn our attention now to your word and um, this amazing passage that Jesus um, just quote from this psalm that Jesus quoted from, um, Lord, I really pray that you would unpack this for each one of us today individually. Father, whether we're the one, some of the youngest in the room or whether we're some of the oldest in the room, Lord God, or whether we're listening online, Father, I just pray this message would be opened up by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds and we would be changed as a result of what we've heard today. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, this is exciting. I mean, um, I was talking about this message in the prayer meeting, and in fact, it's something that I really had to deal with as a teenager. So it's a sort of message that's sort of on my heart, really, um, and it's all about the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, okay? Um, So, picking up, some of you might remember, those of you who've been coming a long time, we've been going through Luke um, for quite a long time now. Mark, how many messages have we got? Do you remember? Hundred and something messages. Okay, and to, um, at the end of July we were on Luke 20, and the, in the middle of Luke 20 we were looking at how the Pharisees were disputing with Jesus, and as usual they were trying to catch him out. And we're carrying on from Luke 20, starting at verse 41, and um, Jesus it's his turn to throw a curve ball. It's his turn to throw them something to chew on and um, to have a think about, and he says to them this really interesting quote from Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. It's talking about their future Messiah, and they must have known it really, really well. So he says to them, how can they say that Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David, who wrote the psalm, calls him Lord But how can he be his son? There is this biblical conundrum that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the teachers of the law just did not want to properly address. David is saying, you are my Lord, and yet you're my son or my descendant. How do we square these two things? Um, David's throne and the promises of David's reign coming back into the Israeli community was was foretold many times in Scripture. If you want to have a read this afternoon of Psalm 89, it talks about the Davidic kingdom being an eternal kingdom, that God was going to send his, his, his Messiah through the line of David. And the religious leaders were really up on the son of David thing. They, they all knew that the promised Messiah would come from the original King David. You know, they were looking for a liberator. They were oppressed by the Romans. And they were looking for someone who would come and overthrow the Romans, like the strength of David's original kingdom. Let's make Israel great again. Where have I heard that recently? 
But Jesus was there to throw a spanner in their thinking. And um, God often does the same with us. You might be sitting here this morning and you might have had a few spanners thrown into your thinking already. God is asking us all the time as Christians to be open to take on new ideas, to not stay in one um, sort of way of thinking. He's asking us to take on board ideas from other people, um, other, you know, other people we might listen to, other messages, other sermons that we might hear, other, other, other preachers is what I'm trying to say. He's just constantly trying to refresh us and renew us. Of course, we have to always take the word of God and check everything out, as it says in Acts, and the Bereans used to do. They used to check out everything they heard that was new to just to make sure that it lined up with the word of God. But um, God is challenging the, um, he was challenging the religious leaders and he's challenging us today to um, break out of some of the sort of rut thinking we can have. Dave alluded to this last week when he said the Bible is full of parallel truths like a train track. They appear to contradict one another, but they actually need to be held in tension and kept parallel if you want to keep your train, the train of your faith on the track. He gave us the example that he explored last week of the sovereignty of God compared to man's free will. Two completely um, central truths to the Bible. We have to sort of keep in tension as we see what goes on in the world around us. And we've got loads of others. There's grace and faith. If you overboard on one at the expense of the other, your train is derailed. Faith and works is another one. The father heart of God against the fear of God. These truths held in tension give the Christian life balance. And today we're going to look at another one, which is why I brought it up again. We're going to be looking at the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. And as I said at the very start, it was the divinity of Jesus that I had a real problem with when I was a teenager. You know, in in Matthew, Mark and Luke, he's talked about as the son of man. And his manhood is accentuated. And I just couldn't find the divinity bit in it. And then I got to John's gospel. And there he's called the son of God. And I started to dig deeper. And then I became convinced of his divinity. So today I want to unpack those two parallel truths um, for us. So first of all, we're going to look at Jesus' humanity You know, in this day and age, we don't have any problem with Jesus' humanity. I don't know about you, but you meet people who historically do believe that Jesus existed. We have records that talk about him. People like Josephus, who were historians of the time, they've written about this man, Jesus. I think there's more documented evidence for him than there is for Julius Caesar, for instance. So we don't have any problem that he came and he walked and he was human. But in fact, strangely... After the, um, all of the early church fathers died out, when you get to 100 AD, 200 AD, they started not to doubt his, his divinity, they doubted his humanity because um, they thought that the flesh was inherently evil and how could God inhabit a human body? So they thought he must have looked human, but he wasn't really human. There was something else going on here. So there was a great tussle in the doctrine at the time to, to establish that he was fully human. So I'm just going to do a little bit of establishing, if that's all right with you. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' humanity. And I'm going to go right back 
to where it all started for Jesus in the sense of his coming as a baby. And that is in Luke chapter 1. And we have the angel Gabriel arriving on the scene. We have Mary, the virgin, who um, is um, not married yet, but betrothed to Joseph. And the angel announces to her, you will conceive in your womb. You'll bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus, which means savior. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I do not know. I've not known a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Ghost will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So in fact, that passage embodies both, doesn't it? It's the, the divinity of Jesus. He's going to be the Son of God, but he's also come from the line of David, as was established in the genealogies that are in Luke and, Mark, and Matthew. Um, and Mary, of course, said, let it be unto me according to your word. So this is where the free will and the, the, what we were talking about last week, God's plan, but Mary had to submit to his plan and allow this to happen. I mean, for her, it was going to potentially wreck her relationship with Joseph, as, you know, as, as did potentially happen, but God sorted it out for Joseph, which is another sermon. <laughs> Um, Okay, so what we see here is the Holy Ghost is there at the very beginning of Jesus' conception because you can't make a human being just from a a woman's egg. You have to have the other half, don't you? (laughs) We all know that. So who brought the other half? God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, provided his DNA into that egg so that there was a divine element and a human element joined together. And this is why the virgin birth is so important to the to the Christian faith you know we cannot um, expunge this 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 doctrine this fundamental um, premise a fundamental truth of the Christian faith it has to be a virgin birth we cannot have the son of God um, in the flesh if it's not a virgin birth okay so moving on a virgin birth <laughs> sorry that the, the the conception of Mary brings forth Jesus. So Jesus had a normal gestation period. You know, we've just had a baby in in our family. My daughter's had a baby in the last few months, and she was pregnant for nine months. (laughs) And we saw the bump growing, and it was all very exciting. And I know Tracy's got that happening with her daughter too, and it's all very exciting to see this change in your, your daughter as this baby is growing. And this is what happened to Mary. She had a proper pregnancy. She had a normal birth, and Jesus was born in normal ways. He was very normal and human. And then there's loads of uh, um, passages in the New Testament that talk about his humanity. In Luke 2.52, it says he had to grow up in wisdom and stature. You know, he didn't grow with it all sorted. He didn't grow as a baby and could talk. He didn't grow as a baby who could know immediately um, how to speak several languages. You know, he had to grow in all of these things. He had to grow in stature. He had to grow physically. He was a normal human being. And I think one of the greatest testimonies to his normalness is Mark in, in chapter 6, verse 3. You know, he's, he, the people of his town says, he's just the carpenter. Who does he think he is as he would get up in the synagogue and preach to them? He, he, his mother is here, Mary. He's got brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and he's got sisters. You know, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He 
was so normal, he was totally under their radar as being anything other than one of the people that lived in their village. And then Jesus got tired like we do. It says in John 6, John 4, sorry, he, he, he went to walk all the way to Sychar to meet the woman at the well. And then he, he, it was midday, he was weary, he was tired, he sat down on the well. He said, I'm hungry, can, uh, thirsty, can you get me a, a drink, please? He was weary, very human. And then Luke 4, when he fasts, he gets hungry. He's not divine at that point. He's, well, he is divine, but his humanity comes out. He gets hungry and thirsty. And his humanity comes out also in the way he not just physically is, but how he emotionally is. When he saw a huge crowd as he stepped out of the boat, and they were sick and, and hurting, you know, he was moved with compassion like we are. When we see horrible things, we're moved with compassion. Sometimes we can feel it inside us. Or sometimes we just have to turn the screen off sometimes if it's just too graphic because it's too upsetting because we identify with other people's hurt. Jesus did just the same. In fact, when, when Lazarus died in John 11, he groaned in his spirit and he wept. He really felt the loss of, of Lazarus and the effect of this loss on his friends. And then in Isaiah 53, you know, we read that he, he, didn't, he wasn't anything special to look at. Sometimes we think Jesus would have been like, like you know, one of the icons of, our, our, of today. I don't know who comes to your mind. I can't think of anybody, which is actually quite helpful. <laughs> but, you know, if we go back to the Old Testament, when Saul became king, he looked like he was king. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. Okay? He looked like a king. It says about Jesus... In Isaiah 53, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. There was nothing to attract us to him. He wasn't beautiful. He wasn't one of the beautiful people of his time. And in Hebrews 4, it says, he faced all the same temptations that we do. Um, and yet he did not sin because that's where the God bit came in. He was able to overcome all temptations. So I just want to pause at this point and say, how amazing is it that the God who made this place, the God that made the creation, that made the universe, has allowed himself to be limited to a human being, to come as one of us, to experience everything we experience, all the pain and the grief and the suffering of we see other people around us. And, and to limit himself, that's what I found so incredible as I was preparing this. It's like us saying, I'm going to become an ant. <laughs> that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. God limited himself. And the reason he did this is, and I want you to keep this in mind, is he so loved the world. He so loves us. He so loves you and me that he gave his prized possession he gave his most precious thing, his son that was with him at the creation, the start of creation, the word who became flesh. He gave him so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know, we're going to go from this place to eternity one day. And what we've said and what we've decided about Jesus is going to decide where we go. Okay, let's look at Jesus's um, um, divinity now we've established his humanity let's look at his divinity okay 
I'm going to pick some scriptures from the New Testament to start with. I love 1 Timothy 3.16 because it's just punchy. just gives it to you in one. It socks it to you in one. God was manifest in the flesh. Punch. You have it there. All in one go. One package. Delivered. God was manifest in the flesh. And that word manifest means to appear, to show yourself. God showed himself in the flesh. Jesus said, he who's seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. It says here in Colossians, I've got a Colossians one here, for in Christ lives all the fullness of the God in a human body. Every characteristic of God was expressed through the life of Jesus. And John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. And that's a really important scripture because I don't know if you've ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses bless them come knocking on your door. But one of the things they want to tell you is, and I, you know, I love them to bits, they're lovely people, they're just a bit misguided, but they want to tell you that Jesus is a created being. In fact, they believe he's Michael the Archangel, but they, they put him in a really high place, but they say he wasn't in the beginning with God. Just sort of moments later, God made him. But John refutes that argument at the start of his gospel. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. And we come back to our train tracks. We come back to our parallel truths. There's God the Father and God the Son. In fact, our train tracks got three, three tracks now because <laughs> we're coming to God the Holy Spirit as well. As, so we've got a Trinity track. <laughs> But again, it's truth's intention. Somehow we have to, with our finite brains, understand that God who is one, which is a very Jewish and important concept, we're not talking about three gods here, we're talking about one God who expresses himself in three ways. God the Father, God the Son in the Word, and God the Holy Spirit. And I like to think of it, being a scientist, as water. H2O. It can be ice, it can be liquid water, and it can be steam but it's all water. And that's how I sort of process it. So there's loads of scriptures on the deity of Jesus in the New Testament, and they're listed for you at the bottom if you want to do any extra study. Okay, so to answer our question, whose son is the Christ? We have clear support from scripture that Jesus is both a human being and yet, and the son of David a descendant of David, but he's also the son of God. He's also divine. He, has, he is God in human form. And um, Paul, I think I'm right here going here. Yes, Paul got this sorted really, really quickly. You know, Paul was a, a, a student of Gamaliel, one of the scribes, and he knew all the Old Testament. He was an expert in the law, and yet he missed Jesus to start with. But when he did find him, suddenly everything fell into place with him, and he wrote this amazing book, Romans. And it, it's that amazing exposition of the gospel of grace. And he opens up this amazing book with this verse. He, he talks about... Um, have I missed this? Sorry, did I miss this one out? Okay, anyway, it doesn't matter. He talks about Jesus um, being born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
Paul is pointing out to us here two things. He's got the seed of David bit correct, and he's got the, the divinity of Jesus, the Son of God, correct. And he says that the ultimate proof of the resurrection, of, of the divinity of Jesus, is the resurrection. Let me just read it to you again. Sorry, I didn't express that very clearly. I apologize. He says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by or through the resurrection from the dead. So it's through the resurrection that we see his divinity. You know, guys, there's loads of people who have come and gone on our planet who have said amazing things. They've been leaders of religions. They've done amazing things. But all of them are dead. Whereas Jesus is in a class of his own. He is in a unique position He's in his own category because our Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the proof, Paul says, of his divinity. All the other leaders of world religions and other things were, might have been great men, might have said some great things, but Jesus is unique. And it's the power of the resurrection, the evidence of the resurrection that proves his divinity. So I'm just going to go away a little bit from scripture for a few minutes because I found this very helpful when I was struggling with this concept. If we can have a look at the resurrection and find evidence for it, then the divinity of Jesus is is underlined for us. The proof that he is God comes to the fore. So first of all, how do we do that? Well, what historians do is they go to primary sources. They go to people who were eyewitnesses of whatever event they're trying to establish. And interestingly, of course, the gospel writers were eyewitnesses. And Luke, was very, who was a physician, an educated man, was clearly motivated by this thought that he actually was an eyewitness and he ought to get what he's seen written down. So he says at the start of his gospel, I've had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning. I thought it would be a good idea to write an orderly account so that you could know the certainty of the things you have been told. And at the start of Acts, which Luke also wrote, he said, "Um, Jesus showed himself alive during a period of 40 days with many infallible proofs. So here we have an eyewitness account, a primary source, giving these two accounts in Luke and Acts, which we can go away and read. But there's also archaeological evidence. And Dave and I had the privilege to go to Israel in March of this year. And we went to Jerusalem and we were able to look at this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, that's referenced in all the Gospels as the place where Jesus was crucified. And the interesting thing about Golgotha is, there should be a slide up here, um, it's, it's got the, the eyes and the nose of a skull in the, in the rock formation. I don't know if you can see that. It's eroded quite substantially in, in recent years, um, the last hundred years or so, because it's actually a limestone cliff. And as we know, limestone um, erodes, um, it, it can get weathered quite easily. It's not granite or something. So it's, it's not so easy to see as it used to be. But the point is, we don't know for certain that Jesus was crucified here, but it's really, really interesting that this piece of rock has been here for a long, long time, and it does show the imprint of a skull. The other things that fit with this location is that it's outside the walled city of Jerusalem. 
Okay, Jerusalem's walled city is still archaeologically established. It's not the original walls. They were rebuilt um, with the Crusaders and things. But the, they built them on the original ones. So the base rocks are still the same. The base of the Temple Mount is still the original blocks. Some of them are massive. They're absolutely massive. How they got them in place, I just don't know. So this situation, Golgotha is actually on the main road outside the Damascus Gate. And in Matthew, it said that people passed by and they ridiculed Jesus and said, you saved others, save yourself. And so this place does fit on that account as well. It's outside the city, John 19, and it's on a main road, Matthew 27, 39. And the Romans used to like to not crucify people miles away where no one could see them. No, they didn't do that. They crucified people along the road as they went into the city so that it would be a deterrent. So all of this fits with this being the possible location. And then there's the garden tomb. Now, the garden tomb is really interesting because I was quite sceptical of this garden tomb until I visited it. And um, in, in, in one of the accounts, it actually says... I think I'll give you the scripture, it's, I think it's John 19, that near the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Now, <laughs> the, place, the place of the skull is now a bus station, so it doesn't help. <laughs> I did manage to, uh, on that previous slide, I did manage to sort of crop the photo so you didn't see all the buses. But, you know, it, this is the problem, isn't it, with going to archaeology now, because it's not quite how it was. And then the garden tomb is a bit different too because um, it's literally just two, 100, 200 yards from this place of the skull that we were looking at. And it says in the accounts that it was very close by. But there wasn't one to start with. There wasn't a garden there. But in 1867, a Greek landowner who owned that bit of land next to the wall with the skull in it, he was looking for a place, um, for, he was looking for water, and he started digging down deeply. And there should be a slide of a very old picture. That's it. Sorry it's so old, but it was taken in the 1860s. And he dug down. This wall behind you is the same wall with the skull on it, 100 yards to the um, right. Okay? And he started digging down, and he found a cave. And he stopped digging, and he thought, I've got to get some um, advice with this. So he got um, a noted Swiss archaeologist called Conrad Schick to come and advise him of what he'd found. He said, could I use this as a cistern? Because I want to store water in the cool. And the, um, um, the archaeologist did a dig, and he excavated the site properly in 1873. And he said to him, no, you mustn't touch it. It is a Jewish burial um, ground. And it's a Jewish tomb. Leave it alone. Don't ever use it as a cistern. And the interesting thing is that um, this place was then further excavated, and it was found that in the rocks that they'd excavated, there was evidence of a garden around the time of Jesus. So this had been a garden. When they removed all the topsoil and all the rubble, if you can see the depth there, Mark, could we go to the next slide? That depth is now where you walk to go in. They've walled up a bit of it, I think. But you go into this cave where this man had discovered. But they've, they've dug out so much ground that you don't feel you're going down anymore. Do you understand what I mean? They've made a big apron for you to just walk straight in. And it's the same wall as the, um, as the place of the skull, which is 200 yards just off to one side. 
And inside this garden tomb, um, there are three depressions. And um, those three depressions are where they laid bodies. So as you can see there, there's carved in the stone, there's these three depressions. And that's what they did. They laid the bodies in these cold caves and they rolled stones over the front as we is described in the scriptures. And in fact, there's a, there is a groove outside this cave, this, this opening for a stone that would have been able to be rolled across. So... This doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. But isn't it interesting that it totally lines up with Scripture? And I finally, just to finish, I just want to look at other evidence. What happened afterwards? What's the evidence afterwards that Jesus did really rise from the dead? Well, the first evidence is the tomb was empty and no one could produce the body. No one could produce the body. The Jews couldn't produce it. The Romans couldn't produce it. And the disciples didn't produce it. Even though there was this story going around that the guards had told the Jews and the Jews bribed them to say, say the disciples stole the body, but just, you know, don't, don't let on that he rose from the dead. That's in Matthew's account. And then we have the account of the disciples. They all were martyred. Most of them were martyred for their faith. Would they have allowed themselves to be martyred for something that they knew was founded on a lie? You know, lots of people die for something that they really, really believe is worth dying for. Lots of people have given their lives for nations, for family members, because that's real and they can see it. But if you know that you're, what you're doing is founded on a lie, would you allow yourself to be crucified upside down like it's traditionally said that Peter was? And all of the... Um, the Christians who were martyred in the arenas like the Colosseum, who were used for sport, you know, they had something so real that their present torment and torture just didn't mean anything because God was so real. The resurrection was so real. And then in Colossians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 at once, at one time. And Paul was writing this in AD 54. And he said, a lot of them are still alive. So if you'd, if you'd lived at that time and you'd wanted proof, you could have popped along and found someone who'd been one of the 500. And finally, we have Paul himself on the road to Damascus, this ardent persecutor of the early church, hauling men and women out, and, you know, putting them in prison, being there at the stoning of Stephen and condoning what they were doing. This hard-nosed case of a man is totally changed by what? An encounter with the risen Jesus. This man becomes the primary evangelist of the Roman world in the New Testament. How did that happen if all of this is based on a lie? You know, when I was um, wrestling with this, this book is really old. <laughs> Can you see? Because I'm really old now. <laughs> and I was reading this in my teens, and it's called Who Moved the Stone? And it's still available. I was looking, it's on Amazon now. It's got a much prettier cover than this one. But um, if anybody wants to borrow this, and because this is an issue that they're still wrestling with, please help yourself today. I'll leave it on the coffee table. So I've put loads of arguments forward today for the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. But I just want to close this sermon off by saying that the only thing that really, really will give you that sense that Jesus is God is the Holy Spirit himself. In Romans 8, we read that it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And when you're a Christian, he comes to live in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he'll give life to your mortal bodies 
by that spirit that's living in you. And those of us that have asked Jesus into our lives, who have become convinced of his divinity, that he is God in the flesh, that he came and died a horrible death for the forgiveness of our sins. When you do that, when you make that decision, Jesus comes to live in you and you have that inner witness. And all of this other evidence is important, but that is the main piece of evidence for you. And it transcends all the other pieces, though they all fit together and slot in and help us get to a position where we can make that step of faith and say, yes, Lord, I believe. So as I close this service off today, I want to invite anybody, either in the room or online, who through hearing the evidence that Jesus is God, that he was raised from the dead, it says in the Bible that if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and you can say today that Jesus is your Lord and you want to live the rest of your life in the context of that, then you can actually invite him into your life to forgive your sins. And then what I've got up here comes into your heart. The Holy Ghost himself, the third track on our, our Trinity train line, <laughs> comes to live in you. God, the Holy Spirit. And he will give you the witness and certainty of what I've been saying. So I'm going to pray for you in a minute. And for those of us in the room who already know the living God that we're talking about, you know, we're exhorted to be filled regularly with this Holy Spirit. We all leak like good colanders and we need constant refreshing. So I'm going to be praying for us to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. So let's just pray together. Father God, I just lift up today anybody in the sound of my voice who has reached that decision point, who through this message and the facts that have been presented and the understanding that it's given have come to that point where they can make that step of faith and believe that you, Jesus, are God in the flesh, that you, the, 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 the living God that created the universe, has come and lived amongst us. And you, and you believe that God has raised you from the dead. If you're one of those people today and you can say that Jesus is Lord, just in your heart now, invite God into your heart. Invite him into your life to be your saviour from your sins. Say, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead and I want to make you my Lord today. And God will do that. Father, fill those people, I pray, with your Holy Spirit and give them that inner witness that they now are filled with your life and their eternity is secure. And for those of us in the room, Father God, I just pray right now, Father, we need you. How much we need you, Lord. Father, we, I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that this life-giving um, part of your nature that is able to dwell in the spirit of man would come and revive us, refresh us and empower us for the week ahead. Thank you, Father God. Father, we ask all this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.